when you're naked, people are really cautious and careful and respectful. And when you're strutting around in black lingerie, it's like everybody's like, yeah, oh yeah, she looked great. And, you know, it's really, uh, really sets a tone on the set. So I was initially a little uncomfortable. I'm Eli Roth, and this is my Shudder original series, History of Horror Uncut. Each episode is a candid conversation with a master of the genre, drawn from raw and unfiltered interviews conducted for my AMC TV series, Eli Roth's History of Horror. These are deep dives into the dark power and wicked fun of frightening movies, the craft that goes into making them, and the ways that horror reflects the anxieties of our times. They're also probing, insightful, and often funny conversations that open up doors into the minds of horror's star creators. The terror begins right after this. In the 1970s and 80s, Nancy Allen's killer combination of dazzling beauty and a wicked sense of humor landed her juicy parts in films by world-class filmmakers. Directors like Hal Ashby, Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, and Brian De Palma. Her breakout role was in De Palma's Carrie, playing Chris Hargensen, the model for every high school mean girl to come. Unlike many starlets at the time, Nancy rarely played a victim. The daughter of a New York City policeman, she was tough and self-assured, on screen and off. She put those qualities to good use in the two films she made while married to De Palma, Dressed to Kill and Blowout, and in Paul Verhoeven's satirical masterpiece, Robocop. She is now the executive director of the We Spark Cancer Support Center. Nancy sat down with History of Horror showrunner Kurt Sienga for a frank conversation about the making of Carrie in Dressed to Kill, gender expectations, transphobia, sexual repression, and the highs and lows of working with perfectionist directors. Do you like horror films in general? And by horror, I have a very broad definition, which, you know, is a lot of Hitchcock and a lot of what we call thrillers as well. That's my definition, too. It's pretty broad. And uh, I do like them if they're good. That would include, you know, obviously an interesting story, great performances, interesting camera work, surprises, a little bit of humor thrown in. I'm not a huge fan of straight terror pictures, not because they scare me that much. They just seem not that interesting to me. I know people love them, which is great, <laughs> great for the business, but it's just not my cup of tea. But What do you like? What are your favorites? Well, you know, let me start with this. My parents, I don't think, had a clue. They took me to see Psycho when I was 10, and it's just a great movie. It destroyed me. I still can't take a shower uh, and not look around or, you know, but... I really do love Hitchcock's films. Most of them, I think, are just phenomenal. They they really tap into um, fears and the complexity of human beings and the duplicity. I like dark things, you know. I like that. So um, I love The Exorcist. I think it's a great film. I saw it in a drive-in, and <laughs> it was a great way to see it. It's terrifying. Uh, and again, very smart movie. 
Uh, recently, in the last couple of years, I loved Get Out. I just thought it was brilliant. It just hit every mark because it's frightening. It's smart, funny. On a human level, it really taps into some of what's going on in the world today. And the It's a bit like some of Brian De Palma's films in that it works as a thriller, as a horror film, but it's also deeply satirical. Yeah, no, it's exactly. It's true. I did love Brian's work. I thought that certainly Phantom of the Paradise, I saw that a few years before we did Carrie, and I just... I just love that movie. I don't think enough people have seen it, and I wish more people would see it. Uh, it's a really clever film. Obsession, sort of, kind of. I like it. It's interesting, but it's not really my favorite. And I just, I still think to this day that Carrie remains one of the, the best, and uh, that's what people tell me. Everyone loves it, and uh, it's really evolved in a great way in terms of the audience and I don't know how much I saw. Well, 13 Ghosts, it's not really a horror movie. I saw that when I was a kid. I don't know. You know, I just, I do enjoy them because I think that it's an emotional, psychological ride. It's kind of like being afraid of rides at an amusement park. You take that ride and then you get scared and then you laugh. It, you know, a good one will make you kind of laugh at how scared you are. And the really good ones make you think and are a bit reflective of, of life, like Carrie or like, you know, get out. What's the plot of Carrie? Well, in a couple sentences, you know, high school kids, outsider, everybody hates, good girl, bad girl, you know, good boy, bad boy. Something happens, goes awry, and uh, mayhem <laughs> ensues. I will tell you, though, uh, there was a Carrie in my eighth grade class who did get her period. She had no idea what was going on. She had a very religious mother. And the difference is that in this sweet little Catholic school, we, had, we just all looked, walked. Nobody said a word. She was taken aside. But I think it's, it's really about how mean kids can be. And if you're different, we're going to torture you, you know, and you will pay for it. But then, of course, Carrie has her day and her revenge, and she turns the tables on us. So Tell me about your character, Carrie. Well, Chris Harkinson is... She's the girl. She's the one that everybody wants to copy and be like. And she's the trendsetter, I would say. And um, I don't think that she's a bully. I think that her bullying came out when she didn't get what she wanted. But, you know, she thinks she's all that. And, and everybody else thinks she's all that. And uh, there's something off there. She wouldn't be attracted to Billy Nolan. The John Travolta character, because he's kind of a, a doofus, although she can manipulate him, which works for her. She's manipulative, and when she doesn't get what she wants, she's mean. The dynamic with you and Travolta is interesting. Well, again, that's, this is the part of the movie that sometimes I think people forget because they focus on the bloodbath at the end. But the whole front section of the movie is just black comedy, basically, right? So, And you and John Travolta's characters in particular seem more like you're the comic characters until it turns sinister. <laughs> Were you surprised at that when you saw the actual cut of the movie? So. Oh, my God. I was stunned because John and I were so beloved on the set. Every time we came on the set, I was like, oh, good, they're here. And everyone would laugh. And we thought it was like funny. And then in the dailies, everyone was laughing. And I just thought, oh, we're just so funny and adorable. <laughs> and I will never forget, not at the MGM, you know, premiere screening with the cast and crew and all that. But the first time I saw it in an audience in New York City on Broadway, 
and people yelling at my character, hit her and, you know, do this and hating us. I, I was stunned. I really was. I just thought we were funny. You know, I didn't realize how hated we were going to be. But I guess that worked really well for the piece. Certainly it did. It just made me sad a little bit. I wanted everyone to like me. What was the relationship of the young woman in the movie to the uh, young men in the movie? Well, I would say between the women and the men, the women were really in control. And and I have to say, if you look at high school kids, I think women, the girls really can lead the men in any direction they want to go, you know, and uh, that's the way it is in the film. So it's accurate, in my estimation. Sue applies the wrench just as tightly as yeah, everybody it's, does. It's right back and forth between those two scenes, the car scene and then the homework scene and back and forth and back and forth. I, still to this day, I will really never understand why some people thought that Sue was in on it and that when she sneaks in to see, you know, the prom and what's going on, there were many people that thought that she was in on the trick and it just never made any sense. I thought it was perfectly clear in the movie what her motive was. Yeah, she just wanted to see her happy little fantasy come to life. Yeah, it was a way of, you know, assuaging her guilt. (laughs) Chris is a little bit more honest, I'm just going to say. She didn't care. (laughs) Tell me a little about the second scene, like after the volleyball, when we go into the famous infamous shower scenes. You know, when everybody was cast, the film was all storyboarded. And I remember seeing Brian, I think I was the last person cast, he walked me through and he says, so here and you're in the shower. Everybody had to be okay with not having clothes on. And he says, but it's going to be a lot of, you know, smoke, fog. So you'll, you'll see an arm here, leg there kind of thing. So there was that. I can do that. So on the day, actually, Sissy was the first person shot in the shower. So the rest of the girls, we were all sitting outside. In fact, I have the cutest little picture of us sitting outside in our robes on the stairs outside the school waiting for six hours. So by the time we went in there, we were really pretty worked up and terrified about what it was going to be like. But it was shot very simply. In fact, it was Brian and Zora Mankowski was still the DP at that time. He was in there with a, you know, handheld and I think the focus puller and um, there wasn't any sound. So there was no crew. It was very... And um, I didn't know a lot about filmmaking at the time and getting a camera. And it looked like it was pretty close to me. I thought, okay, so they're probably, I had no idea. It was like head to toe. And, you know, we went through, we shot it. And yes, there was smoke coming through. It didn't seem like a lot, but we made it through. There were a few meltdowns with a couple of the girls right before we started shooting. Like, I can't, you know, I don't want to, I have a scar and, you know, this kind of thing. So, you know, Brian acquiesced and... They left their bra and panties on. And the following day, when we went to dailies, it was eye-opening, to say the least, <laughs> even for us. I mean, there we were, head to toe. And, and I thought, well, you know, at least it looks nice. It kind of looks nice. I was trying to make, make myself okay. <laughs> Betty, you know, she was like, I just think this is outrageous. And she got everybody all worked up. But I would say I'm very grateful because it really was shot in a way to make us as comfortable as possible. And it does look nice for the most part. And it's nothing that I feel ashamed or bad about. And I'd do it again, not at this age, but, you know, going backwards, I would maybe exercise just a little bit more. (laughs) The group dynamic where the girls are pounding carries feels really real and kind of dangerous. You know, after we shot that scene of us in the shower, the next sequence, as you know, is Sissy all alone in the shower and 
in her reverie until she realizes she doesn't really know what's going on with her. She's getting her period. And when she comes to us, cut to us, we're dressed by now. We're ready. We're, we're done. And she comes walking in our direction. And I, I don't even really think we're thinking about what happened or what's wrong with her. We're just, just, just repelled by her because she's just lost the game and she's just stupid and who needs her. And I will tell you that I've never experienced this on any other thing that I've done. Whatever it was, it's like it worked into this kind of mob, ugly mentality. I mean, it was like savagery in a way, you know, and, and this, this kind of frenzy that we got into. And when it was over, I mean, it was pretty upsetting, even for us. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was, it was awful. How did Sissy handle it, being on the other end of that? Well, you know, Sissy's a trooper. And, you know, I think that she stayed apart from the cast almost entirely until the prom sequence. I mean, she'd say hello, but didn't really mix with us. And I think that fueled her feelings uh, within the framework of what she was doing. So yeah, she was great. And to be honest with you, when I think back on it, I don't know that any of us were really thinking about her at the time because we really were truly very upset by what we had just done. It's a strange feeling. Yeah, to be part of like the smob. Ugly. Yeah, really ugly. Tell me a little about shooting the prom scene. I understand there are about 100 setups. Well, the prom scene, as I recall, took two to three weeks to shoot. It was a long, longest sequence in the film. It's the big set piece, of course. You know, the beginning was great and everybody's there and it's all really pretty and everybody's really happy, except for John and I who were stuck on the staircase. We were just like, and I'm claustrophobic, so it was horrifying for me. But it was complex. Brian tends to do a lot of takes, so it was really exhausting for everyone. Uh, the big crane shot that starts when she's elected and it starts on them and the camera goes everywhere and up and down and around. And it's a very long sequence. And uh, we shot that I don't even know how many times. You know, it's like it's like dancing in a way. You know, everything has to be timed, and which I kind of like. I like those long shots because I used to dance, so it sort of feels good. But it's it's exhausting for everyone, including the crew. And and there was a glitch. The studio came in and there was a big hullabaloo. And Brian said, fine, I'll shoot it real simple, guys. We'll just get a shot and that's it. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. So we kept the crane, you know. Uh, but after the blood was dumped on Sissy and the real effects and the chaos started, well, first of all, Brian did clear the set and only whoever was in the shot could be there. People did get hurt. PJ, her eardrum was punctured with the hose and somebody else's rib was cracked. I mean, there was a lot of that because it was some of the stuff that was kind of dangerous. So it had, it really changed the whole vibe because it's really such a kind of a camaraderie and fun and good spirit up until this point. And then everybody kind of had to separate and go away pretty much. But uh, in seeing the dailies, uh, you could see it was something really special. So my daughter watched last night, and she said she's surprised that the first of the movie felt like more like a John Hughes teen comedy <laughs> drama. Had you worked with any directors who are quite as exacting or precise as De Palma was? Because he was pretty much known for his cinematic style and his kind of extremely thought out approach to filmmaking. Well, certainly not before, because I had only had a small part in the last detail, and Hal was kind of loose. But I'd worked in commercials for 10 years. 
So I was used to that sort of precision and doing things again and again, even if you thought you had it, you know, just that kind of repetitive process. In film, working with Brian, it was great because you could try different things, which was a lot of fun. Not everybody likes it, but I do. I kind of like it. I like the experimenting. Since then, let me think, Paul Verhoeven, who did RoboCop, I would say in a way, but that was so loosely shot because it was all, almost all handheld. So you had a lot of movement, like a play, but he's exacting in that he knows what he wants. He knows specifically what he wants. It's, a, it's looser. For Brian, it's really, you're really kind of constricted into the formula of the shot. Yeah, I would say no. Even Spielberg, who I did 1941 with, Bob Zemeckis, they're directors that know what they want, but they didn't do as many takes. I mean, Stephen didn't do as many takes. Uh, nobody I've ever worked with has done as many takes as Brian. Do you revisit the film from time to time? Or, I mean, what's your relationship to it now? Well, I feel like I hadn't seen it for many years. And then the 40th anniversary came up a few years ago. I think it was 2016 was the 40th anniversary. There was a big re-release of the film and Shout Factory and all of that. And I did a fundraiser and screened the movie for almost a thousand people and raised a lot of money for my charity. But that was the first time I'd seen it on a big screen and maybe since it opened, actually. And it was really thrilling. And Piper was sitting right behind me. She's so shy, you know, and she was so thrilled and people just applauding her. And it was kind of like with Rocky Horror Picture Show, people would say the lines and, you know, it was really exciting to see that and to see that the film is really good and still really relevant and works. And of course, I'd seen something on, you say, in cable, oh, I'll look at a scene here or something like that. But I think I still have the DVD or Blu-ray or whatever it is. I've never opened it. So it's hard for me sometimes to watch it myself. So common. <laughs> for yes, I know I'm not alone in that. <laughs> Why do all the young women in Carrie hate her so much? I think the girls hate Carrie because she's different. She's not like them. And if you're not like them, you're obviously uh, useless and stupid. Kids are very black and white. I mean, maybe kids are nicer now. I don't know. I hope so. But I think that's, that's basically why. And pretty simple. You're different. You're stupid. You don't dress like us. You're an idiot. Kids aren't really very solid for the most part. So anything that threatens... Your perspective on things has to be pushed aside, I think, too, on an emotional level. Has anything changed given that there's school massacres? Like, does the massacre and carry like resonate in a different way than it used to? Well, it's an interesting question. I hadn't thought about that. I, I don't know what drives people to, to that point of uh, massacring and murder. And obviously, in carry. You know, she was tormented and tormented and tormented until she couldn't take it anymore. And then you have that character in Joker who, I mean, you're dealing with mental illness, gun control, someone who has been traumatized as a child. There's like so childhood trauma. It's like all of that. I think we're, we're looking at it in a different light in today's standards. I mean, then I don't think that anyone ever actually examined what any of that was about because there hadn't really been any kind of school massacre of somebody, certainly no one likes Sissy. So the horror then of it should be as horrifying now, but it just seems like it's becoming the norm. Just, I can't imagine having been in school in that environment where you don't know if someone's going to come in and shoot you that day. In those days, you don't even really have to think about it. But um, it's really disturbing. You know, it's one thing in a horror film. It's another thing in real life to have that kind of ongoing terror. 
And for the parents, too. Let's switch from that and talk about the more satirical elements of Carrie. When you watch the film, what comic elements kind of come out and stand out to you? One of my favorite scenes in the movie is when (laughs) Betty Buckley has Sue and Billy in detention. Tommy, yes, and and she's talking to them and PJ comes in, (laughs) that whole scene with her and hears it, can I help you? Yes. And, you know, she's just, I mean, that whole scene back and forth, the rock and hard place for Billy, I'm sure he'll talk very eloquently about it. But that for me is an ongoing funny scene. I think that obviously the scene in the car with John and and me is a, it's got some funny elements to it. And in the beginning, the pig scene seems a little funny until it's not funny, until it's really horrible. Um, the prom and the beginning and the ballots and it's just, you know, there's a lot of cute stuff. Even actually, even in the detention scene with the girls, it's kind of funny with us on the ground and having to do all the jumping jacks and all of that. There's, it's just there's a lot of funny stuff. Billy, when I think of Billy approaching Sissy, initially in the library. That's kind of has its own humor to it. And uh, I, I hate to say it, but the stuff with Piper and Sissy, some of the stuff, I mean, it's like that dinner table, it starts out, well, pimples are the Lord's way of chastising. It's a pretty funny line in that moment. All well, those scenes are hilarious in their way. And their acting styles, if you could talk about that, they're, they're kind of very different acting styles, but they somehow mesh together in those really long scenes they have together. They, they do. And Piper really walks that line. She's mad, such a brilliant actress. Because I think one tiny bit more would have been like really hysterically funny. But she just skates that line of being real and frightening and then funny at the same time. And then Sissy is so loosey-goosey, you know what I mean? She's just really uh, very, has a very light touch to her approach. And I think it was very, so much of it was um, almost her own sweetness that was coming through in that character. But yeah, yeah, they're very different. Piper's much more theatrical in a way. Sissy's pretty straight film style acting. I think. Was Carrie a good vehicle for Brian De Palma's ongoing interests as a filmmaker, or did it play to his strengths in some way? I think for Brian De Palma, I think Carrie was his breakthrough film. It's like everything that he'd worked on before came together in this piece. If you look at Sisters, Phantom, some of the humor in some of the early films like Hi Mom and Greetings and you know all of that, it, this this combined all of his talents, and then he was able to do a lot of things with his camera that he didn't have a budget for. I mean, Carrie was a huge budget. I think it was like 1.2 million. I mean, that's phenomenal from what he had done before. So I think it did. I think that's why it really broke through for him. It showed like all of his strengths in there. Carrie, of course, is also unusual in that it was a, a horror film, which is, you know, traditionally ghettoized genre. Yet when it came out to Academy Award nominees, came out of it and other things. So was that a surprise to everyone or did it take a while for the studio to figure out that they had something special on their hands? I don't think the studio had any idea that this was a special film. There were the, the films, our film. Carrie and Rocky were kind of like, oh, those films over there, you know, and then Bound for Glory was where they had all their hopes and dreams and that tanked. And then, you know, Rocky, obviously, 
super time. It just broke through and won the Academy Award that year. And then Carrie, this tawdry little horror film, you know, with two nominations for Sissy and for Piper. So they weren't prepared. There really wasn't a great ad campaign. I mean, the success is due to the film, really, rather than anything. And even they didn't even put any money into promoting it. So we had hardly any set stills other than with Sissy and Carrie. I, maybe there was a photographer on the set, maybe once or twice. But I remember seeing it to a packed theater, too. So, <laughs> I mean, the word was out, you know, how good it was. Audiences sense something about a movie before it comes out. They decide before a movie opens, like there's something around a movie. And I think with Carrie, I remember the cast when we all went over to Westwood and I want to say it was a Halloween screening or something like that, a night, like a, a late screening. And we all went and it was packed. And then I went to New York. Brian was living in New York. I went to New York. Amy went into New York and there was, there was no opening. There was no premiere. There's nothing like that for it. But I know one of the great things Brian liked to do is like, let's take a taxi and see if there's a line, you know, and there'd always be these lines waiting to see the movie. It was kind of thrilling. Move to Dressed to Kill. What was the genesis of that movie? Were you around when that was conceived? And what was Brian De Palma trying to achieve, do you think, with that? Brian had developed a script for the movie Cruising. I don't know that he was ever really tied to it, maybe just for a brief moment. There were elements of that in Dressed to Kill. And I also remember watching Donahue with him and seeing, I think it's Nancy Hunt who was on, who was a transsexual. In fact, there's a clip of it in the film. And he was fascinated and got her book and read the book. And so I was shooting 1941. I was in California. Well, actually, no, I was in New York when he was first writing the script. And he'd write, he'd write, he'd get up in the middle of the night and he'd write and I'd come down for coffee or breakfast in the morning and he'd say, oh, let me read you what I wrote. And he'd read me these scenes and and you could see it. I mean, you read, as he's reading the script to me and what he'd written, you could just see this movie. Then I went back to California to finish 1941 and he'd read it over the phone to me. And I said, you know, I don't know. This is going to, I can see this movie. This is going to be a great movie. And he says, what do you think of this role? And I said, oh, I love it. It's a great role. And he said, well, I wrote that role for you, which I was completely gobsmacked. I had no clue. Uh, and I was at once thrilled and then terrified <laughs> that I'd actually have to do it. So that's what I know about how it evolved. Tell me about the role that he wrote for you. Who is that character? Liz Blake. I love Liz Blake. She's just so strong and fabulous and has a plan for her life. And everything has a purpose for her. She's very smart. But she also walks that line of putting herself in danger, too. What I like is that she's smart. She has a sense of humor. She's comfortable with her sexuality. She's not afraid of it or feels like she has to cover it up. She just, she's a free spirit, you know, which was somewhat reflective of my own personality, but not completely. You know, I am a child of the 50s, so I do have that repression that <laughs> lives, still lives in me a little bit. And you went to Catholic school. And I went to Catholic school, for God's sakes. Yeah, bad, bad, bad. Um, yeah, so I really like her a lot, and I like that she has a goal in life. You know, she's 
she wants to get rich and be independent. And I don't know what her backstory is. I don't remember. I think I, I generally write a biography of a character, but I can't remember now if I did that with her. I know I did that with other characters that I played. Anne Roth, fabulous costume designer who did the costumes for that. She also did Clute, very, you know, really incredible designer, still doing beautiful work. She offered to take me to a bar where there were a lot of call girls that she had gotten to know when she was working on Clute. And I said, I don't think so. You know, I was just sort of afraid that, I don't know what I was afraid of, but I now I go back and I think, why didn't you go? That could have been so interesting. So yeah, I like her. I like her a lot. You mentioned Clute, which is probably the first portrayal of a sex worker in film and that she wasn't dragged through the mud and tarred and feathered, but she was still shamed. And your character is just completely unabashed. Yeah, absolutely. And with Jane's character, because she's got a lot of whatever her own personal emotional issues are, but also even the Donald Sutherland character plays that role constantly saying, this is bad, this is terrible, this is, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. Of course, she's in tremendous jeopardy at some point, but I can't think of another character that is like Liz or was like Liz before that. It's just like, yeah, hey, this is what I do. I like it. And hey, you got a hot lunch or a, you know, whatever, you know. She's fun. You play the tensest scene in the movie in lingerie. Did they keep the set warm at least? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing, that lingerie scene in uh, Dress to Kill. I learned something really important. I'd done a nude scene in Carrie, and I actually have that scene in the shower where I'm naked in Dress to Kill. I can tell you something. When you're naked, people are really cautious and careful and respectful. And when you're strutting around in black lingerie, it's like... Everybody's like, yeah, oh yeah, she looked great. And, you know, it's really, uh, really sets a tone on the set. And of course, it's not like I was playing a character who was uncomfortable. This was, she was really strutting her stuff there. So I was initially a little uncomfortable, but because of Michael Caine, who stayed, because, you know, I'm talking for minutes there and the way it was structured, the camera was in a position and had to move. There was really, we couldn't have the desk there. We couldn't. So, and the, all he does is say, uh-huh, from time to time. So Brian said, oh, you know what? You can go, you can go wait in your dressing room and we'll get back to you for the cutaways to you. And he says, no, no, I'm going to stay here because she'll feel, she'll feel me. It'll feel different. So he sat on a apple box for the, however long it took to shoot that. And having him there actually helped me. And I think he was smart enough to know that because even though if I couldn't see him, I did have someone to flirt and to, to kind of play with. You know what I mean? Would I want to do it again? Well, I don't know. It's really, it's tough being exposed like that. And uh, it really is. But you have to get it out of your mind, you know? Otherwise, you can't do it. Plus, you're basically Nancy Drew and hot underwear, right? So. Yes, she does have a purpose. She is on a mission. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> you always know exactly what was going to happen every day when you went to the set. Well, I knew what the setups pretty much were going to be, or I knew that it was, you know, I trusted him completely as a director. You know, you, you know what you're going to be shooting that day, certainly, because you have a call sheet that tells you so. In terms of, you know, you don't, there's always, I guess there's always surprises. I'm just going to say, it's like, I knew where I was going. I know what I wanted to do with this character, but I think you always find little surprises in the moment. Like if you're really in the moment, really listening and playing off of who's there, you might find those little surprises from time to time. 
but it's pretty structured. I did have some leeway. I remember reading, I think it was Nancy Friday's book, which was about women's fantasies, which pretty much were very similar. It was always about this being overtaken and by a stranger. And it's like I was with somebody and then he overpowered me. And, you know, it's like, it was like rape fantasies, really. So when I have to tell that story in the uh, scene with Michael Caine, it kind of was a combination. I read a lot of different things and looked at that and Brian and I talked about it. And that's sort of where that came from. So that was not in the original script. That film was somewhat controversial and remains controversial to this day, but in some ways for different reasons. But at the time, what was the reception like and were you surprised by it? Well, I was surprised by it because especially in New York, which is where we lived at the time it came out, it came out to great reviews. I mean, phenomenal reviews. But the vibe was like, oh, he's such a misogynist and isn't it awful and it's terrible and what he does to women and killing them and making them show their sexuality. All of that, there was a lot of that and uh, people protesting and women and all that, which was all really good for the film, really, because it was like more controversy, more people came to see it. And I didn't really get it. I mean, I get, okay, yeah, I, you know, this character's killed, that part happens in movies like this, but I thought, with my character, what's the problem? You know, she's so she's free sexually, big deal. You know what I mean? She's a strong woman. She was not someone that you felt, I didn't feel exploited at all in the character. I thought she was like, we talked about a really a comfortable woman with who she was and what she was doing. So that was a surprise to me. In fact, I remember sitting in Frankie and Johnny's. We were having dinner with a friend and overheard this table next to us. I mean, because those tables are right next to one another in the old one, not the new one. But And they were saying, oh, it's terrible what he does to her and that wife of his. And she's got her in the lingerie and it's just exploiting her like that. It just, I couldn't resist. And I just turned to them and I said, excuse me. And they looked and I said, you don't really believe that, do you? I said, look at me. Do I seem like someone that could be exploited? I'm pretty tough. I mean, or something along those lines, you know, but that was what the conversation was. So yeah, it was shocking to me. Well, it may also be because there's different attitudes now in feminism, for starters, because you're coming out of first wave feminism and the second wave and all of that. So, and the whole relationship of that to sex work or whatever else, I think, is different now. Yeah, there's a lot of things about it, you know, feminism, and that was certainly a wave of that then, too. But, I mean, I didn't have a gun to my head, and I think everybody should be left to their own choices in life. It's, again, if you're not like me, you're different. And if you're different you're obviously bad or there's something wrong with you and you need to conform in this way. And you can only be a feminist if you conform in this way. Well, I, I don't believe that. I think you can be a feminist and you can be like your sexuality and be comfortable with that and be outspoken or another way. So it just it doesn't have to all have one face to me. I'm told you had nightmares during the production. <laughs> I think my nightmares on Dress to Kill really started towards the end of the picture when they did the throat thing. And it, it, I mean, it, it's so strange because it's all so technical, as you know, and uh, it's like this is happening and someone's pulling a string and someone's pumping. But emotionally, somehow it gets in, at least with me, it gets back in there. Maybe it's, it's all Psycho's fault for making me <laughs> so scared. But I did. I did. I started waking up screaming. What was I dreaming? I couldn't tell you. But I know Brian was like, wake up. <laughs> you know, you're screaming. <laughs> so it's all you and your stupid movie. <laughs> exactly. Wait till I write my book. 
It's all coming out there. Speaking of which, did he know you had a problem with the shower scene in Psycho before he wrote a shower scene for you <laughs> dressed to kill? No, I don't think he did know that. But he did know that I was claustrophobic, which he should have thought of before he put me in the car underwater and blowout. <laughs> so there you have it. Someone has said that all films are biographical, but someone in particular said about Brian De Palma that all of his films are biographical. So do you think there's any truth to that? Uh, I think... There's, I'm sure there's always aspects, particularly if you're writing something that, you know, even if it's in your unconscious, that's that's coming out. And uh, I know he had a lot of conflict with his mother or conflicted feelings about his mother. So he followed his dad around with the camera at his mother's orders, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there's home movies. Yes, he did as a 17 year old uh, went with a, a still camera to try and get. Uh, evidence pictures of his father with the nurse for his mother's divorce. I would say there is a piece of him that's very voyeuristic. You know, it's like if you look through, especially the early films, there's a lot of peeping of different characters. And I think that is definitely like Brian in some ways. Uh, I actually bought him a telescope for Christmas one year. <laughs> you know, we lived at uh, the end of Fifth Avenue down near Washington Square Park, and you know, you'd be looking and seeing in a window. I said, have you seen anything? Well, there's a leg, it hasn't moved, you know, that kind of thing. But I believe that out of that was born uh, the idea for Body Double, which was originally on paper set in New York, which makes to me a lot more sense when you think they're running around and trying to get across the street. And it that everything being so close. But other than that, I mean, the science nerd in Dress to Kill, that's Brian. He was a science nerd. But I, I think not that much, certainly not in that movie, other than that. But do you have any thoughts on transgender activist critiques of that film? I don't know how I feel about that because I think that it's an over-dramatized emotional breakdown, really, of this character who can't get their sex change operation and who's, you know, reacting to his sexuality as a male being aroused. So I, I don't think that it speaks ill or badly of, of transgender people. I mean, if you look at any film where there's a a murder or some kind of horrible thing happen. You can't just say the whole group of people, you know, are like that. But I, I feel badly that people feel that way. In fact, I did a, I did it with Brian Fuller. We did a um, podcast. Um, they really talked about that. And I think that it's a good thing that people are talking about it because there's things have certainly changed along those lines and we're, we're all becoming more comfortable with the idea of that. So anything that draws attention to a cause is a good thing, but I don't think that there's anything really necessarily bad about the movie. One thing I think people forget is the movies made in 40 years ago and maybe and what America was like 40 years ago. So just the fact that basically, you know, you were playing a woman who was sexually confident was everybody's throwing up their hands, you know. Well, it was revolutionary uh, to have that kind of a confidence in a female sex worker. But when I think about the inspiration, which was Nancy Hunt, who was a middle aged man who became a woman. You know, he'd been in the service, he'd fathered children and written a book. And he was on television 40 years ago having this conversation. And it didn't really get much, I, I don't think it got much airwaves or leverage out of that. But I had never heard about it other than Christine Jorgensen. Christine Jorgensen. But I didn't really hardly know anything about that. So today, 
I have friends, people that I know whose child has transitioned, who's, you know, dressing as a, a child in girls' clothes. So it's a very different world today. And, you know, maybe people feel that it jeopardizes that sort of freedom or move forward. But, uh, and I hope they can look at it just as a, a film and see it as that and not an attack on transgender people. I hope so. Because that certainly was never intended by Brian, and I think not in any way. The use of mirrors in the film is always interesting. Of course, whenever Michael Caine's character is aroused, he's always looking his reflection, particularly during your uh, your monologue. <laughs> oh yes, and he has it one. I think he does it once in the scene with Angie as well when she's in there, you know, doing yes. her talk therapy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Michael was so clever. Just because it was just a, a very quick little glance at himself, and I think it—I guess it is—it's that that thing of who am I, that conflict of who am I? I feel this, but I see that, and strange. To me, it always seemed more that he had just driven mad by society. Basically, couldn't express himself. He couldn't be what he felt he was, or that he had to punish himself or punish others. Well, yeah, I mean, he's a, uh, and he's a psychotherapist. And, and really, in those days, it's not like today, in those days, I know this because Brian did a lot of research on it, people who transitioned were generally in their 40s or later. They were not young people. They had tried to live, you know, a more traditional lifestyle and had lived a traditional lifestyle and then, you know, just sort of squashed it for as long as they could. So a lot of times transgenders in those days looked like your auntie. You know what I mean? It wasn't somebody who was young and hip and cool and like it is today, people who are allowed to even speak about those feelings. Children who want to dress like a little girl instead of a little boy or vice versa. How is Dress to Kill a, uh, a social satire? Certainly it starts with Angie's character you know, the housewife pretending to be all aroused by her husband. And then in the museum sequence, there's a lot of humor in that sequence. So she's sitting there and she's thinking and reflecting and thinking about whatever. And you see the those great paintings that she's looking at. And she just writes down, turkey, don't forget the turkey. <laughs> in a way, I think that's sort of a reflecting of what she's really thinking about her husband. That's what I always thought anyway. I mean, I think that whole sequence is exciting, it's thrilling, it's, but it's also funny at the same time, the way they're peeking here, there, and around, and finally she gets in the cab, you know, with the glove, she, he gets in the cab. So I think it really looks at, no matter how we try to look good and proper and appropriate in her beautiful white outfit, you know, there's that other side of her, which is this sort of loose, I mean, that's in all of us, really. It's sort of looking at how we have that dark side, that, that darker side that wants to come out all the time, so. Now, a lot of the film also has a lot of reflections of itself, which perhaps mirrors the duality of Michael Caine's character, as well as the shower scenes. So if you could talk about the shower scenes that start at the beginning and the shower scene that ends the film, and how do those uh, compare to each other? The shower scene in the beginning is her sexual fantasy, really, after she's been screwed by her husband and to not any pleasure for herself. So she's lying there and has this, this fantasy while he's on top of her of what she really wants, which is to be free sexually and to be 
taken by this, again, it's by this stranger, just sort of takes her. This goes back to those fantasies that I read. But that's a way that she can sort of release her probably angry feelings that she's having. And with Liz, it's not a fantasy. It's sort of a dream. In her dream, her fantasy is like everything's, it's all well, but that's that impending doom, that fear is just really over. Is something going to come back and and get me? Because she's had a very traumatizing experience. So hers is from a different perspective and it doesn't actually, there's nothing quite really at all fulfilling in her fantasy. It's just really a nightmare. At the time, Topal was accused of ripping off Hitchcock, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you have the shower scene. But how does the shower scene that he stages at the end of the film differ from the shower scene with Janet Lee? Well, stylistically, it's shot very simply. The shower scene with Janet Lee is like a very complex setup. The difference is, so Janet Lee is a victim in the shower and she's slaughtered in there. In Liz's even nightmare dream, she's still an advocate for herself. She's still going to try and get herself out of there and find a way out when she knows there's something coming. So she's, she's again, not a victim. So I don't know if that's what you mean, but that's kind of- That's good though. No, yeah. I was also thinking just the fact that it's like the shower scene psycho is fast, like the zillion cuts and the shower scene in Just to Kill seems to be like a half hour long. (laughs) (laughs) It does. Yes. She is sort of luxuriating in there while the window's broken and all this other stuff is going on. It's true. I wish I could ask you about Blowout and Robocop, but they don't fit into the show. No, no. Big personal favorites of mine. So Thank uh, you. I agree with you. I love those two for me. But I don't know if you've ever listened to Paul Verhoeven's commentary track on Robocop, but it's the funniest commentary track I think I've ever heard. He's hilarious. I'll have to listen to it. Anything in particular? Uh, He goes in these rants about things that are great. And if you like that, his commentary track on Starship Troopers is just excellent. So because that was, you know, everybody loved Robocop and Starship Troopers was very misunderstood once again. So somehow they missed the fact that it was a satire of... He's such a brilliant, brilliant guy with a great sense of humor. I mean, you can see it certainly in the film. And I think that Ed Newmar and Michael Miner, both great writers. I mean, that was in the, a lot of the humor was in the script. And Pete Paul being Dutch in his first film, he, some of it he didn't get right away. But those rants that you mentioned, he would go on that, on the, on the, he'd walk on the set. Why are we, why are we not shooting? He was used to just shooting, 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 you know, uh, very uncomplicated, not worrying about sound, not worrying. And I will never forget the day we were shooting the scene where we get in the car. I come out with a cup of coffee and Peter's twirling the gun and we have a little dialogue there. And it was one of the few shots where we didn't do uh, all handheld and, and they had to mic us, you know, put the lavalier on us. And Paul about lost his mind. <laughs> You're conspiring. You're conspiring to ruin my movie. <laughs> it's, like, it's like everybody mics on them. It was just so He's just just such a character, but he's his passion and all of that is just so infused the whole movie. It's just so reflective of that the energy in the film is just it's all Paul, really. The script, the smartness I give to the writers, but the that that energy and also the soul, the heart and soul of it, he was able to capture and so that it wasn't just a cartoon. He really felt the soul. I digress. <laughs> no, no, that's fantastic. <laughs>
a lot of criticisms of De Palma is that it's all exercises in style or in technique. Is that fair to say, or do you see these films being grounded in character and emotion? Well, I think there's uh, the early work, all the early work, the building to carry and dress to kill and blow out and untouchables and trying to think, I feel like I'm, oh, a Scarface. And I mean, yes, I think there's definitely film and technique and, you know, an exercise and all of that, but they are grounded in characters and that's why these films don't go away. If they were just a technical exercise, they would go away. You'd see them, you go, that's interesting. And you wouldn't look at them again, which I feel about some things that shall remain nameless. But I look and I think, well, that's really interesting. That's really clever how they did that. Will I sit through it again? Absolutely not. When I look at his later work, I think something's gone. Something's lost there. And I think it's a script and a character issue issues. And, you know, you can only throw so much film technique, get something. And if, if the story isn't there, you don't care about the people. If you're not emotionally invested, it doesn't work. And, you know, I don't know what's happened there, but all the, that first portion, let's say the first half of it all, I think is just, they're good movies. And that's why we can see them again and again. People do see them again and again. I get letters. I know they do, you know. Well, last thing about the, the, the casting of Dress to Kill. So how was uh, cast and were people cast against type for that film? Well, I hope I was sort of cast against type a little bit. Um, no, I think I'm kidding, uh, obviously. You know, I'll tell you an interesting thing. The it, Brian's original choice for the Kate character was Liv Ullman because he wanted someone who was or could be seen as very sexually repressed and could have this complete change and freedom and all of that. And um, she didn't want to, her children to see her and, you know, that kind of a film. And and then somebody else's name came up. I, I think it was, I can't remember now, but then it, Angie's name. And I thought, well, it's really different, but I think it worked out really well because she was always sexy. But I think it worked in a lot of ways to have that character that had maybe been married and now she was ready for the next chapter of her sexuality as a middle-aged woman. I believe in my memory that Michael Caine was always the first choice for this role. And I think he's just perfection in it, really. And um, Keith Gordon, well, Dennis Franz. Dennis Franz had actually done uh, The Fury. He had had, Brian met him on that. And I mean, could anyone touch that role? I don't think so. I mean, he was amazing. I love love his work. I think he's uh, really solid. Keith Gordon, now we'd read a few different people. In fact, um, George Leto, who produced the film, had just done a film, Over the Edge, I think it was. I think Matt Dillon was in it, or maybe it was Kansas, one of those films. And he read for that part. And he was adorable, but he wasn't the right fit. Uh, Keith had done home movies with us. So it was like, duh, you know, what about Keith? I mean, he's sort of perfect because he's so smart. He's just going to blow your mind. I love him. But then at 17, he was brilliant. He was interested in the camera and the angles and the show. And obviously he's become this enormously talented director. You can, I can always tell when he shot something. So I think the casting, I can't imagine anyone else doing any of it. You know, it just seemed like a, a really, a, a really great chemistry with everybody and everybody brought their own stuff that enriched those characters to the role. So. Do you have a favorite role you've played? Well, 
you know, I uh, I have a special feeling for all of my characters, particularly, you know, in, in the movies that I like that I do, because there's always the, the other stuff that I don't like and hope I never see again. But I think I especially love Sally Bedina in Blowout, mainly because I was never meant to play that role. On paper, I didn't like her because she just seemed so weak and too much of a victim. And to find a way to find her, to find my love for her, to find, to give her a goal that she, even though we know as an audience, she's never going to be doing makeup for movie stars, but to give her that hope and to find it. And I look at it and I go, you know what? I like it. It worked. I like this character a lot. And I love that movie a lot. I would say that the other character that I just absolutely adore is Anne Lewis in uh, RoboCop because she is strong and fabulous. And, you know, and I was given a chance to do something that, oh, I don't have to wear lingerie? Really? Oh, it's exciting, you know, to really, to really dig into a different kind of character. My father was a cop to, to be able to say, I know, I know who she is. And to, to pull it off to a point where people just wrote and said wonderful things about my work in it. And I think that the film speaks for itself. And so I think, those two top, the others I love too, that we've talked about, and the rest, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our interview with the incandescent Nancy Allen. Next time, Greg Nicotero. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast hosted by Eli Roth and Kurt Sayanga, produced by Kurt Sayanga, engineered by Chris Heckman, with music by Maestro Joseph Bashara. For oddity, Jessica Bastilos Heckman and Lacey Ogmavoy. For Shudder, Craig Engler, Nicholas Lazo, and Samuel Zimmerman. The interviews in this program were originally conducted for the AMC television series Eli Roth's History of Horror. Executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sayanga, Stephen Michaels, Allison Berkeley, Joseph Freed, Jody Flynn, and James McNabb. Senior producer Ben Raphael Schur. Thanks to Kelly Nash, Richard Drew, Chris Powers, and most valuable player Clara Zwerble at AMC. This is Kurt Sayanga for Eli Roth's History of Horror Uncut. Cut.